We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. The following sermon was given at St. Matthias Family Church, where Philip Jensen was senior minister. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'm reading from verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further directions. Very few subjects in the history of Christianity have caused such contention and disagreement as the Lord's Supper. For many people, it is the very quintessential Christian expression. For others, it is not a central part, even occasional part, in their tradition. There are those denominations that haven't practiced the Lord's Supper as a way of Christian fellowship for more than a hundred years without seeing any decline in spirituality or godliness. But for some people it's a daily event. For some churches it is practised over and over and over even more frequently than daily. And within the uh, tradition for which I and I hope many of you stand, it is the issue for which our martyrs were martyred. It was an understanding of the Lord's Supper that led people like Archbishop Cranmer, the writer of uh, the Anglican Prayer Book, 
to be burnt at the stake. Very interesting really that the great reformation truths of justification by faith alone, by the grace of God through the death of Jesus, the, the authority of the scripture alone, were not the grounds in the end that saw the Latimers and the, the Cranmers and the Ridleys burnt at the stake, but it was the Lord's Supper and their understanding of that which really was the point that led to their condemnation. Throughout the scriptures, there are very few references to the Lord's Supper. There are occasional allusions to the disciples breaking bread together. You cannot be sure whether that's saying they had a meal with each other or that they had the Lord's Supper. You don't know. There is the allusion, I think, in the book of Jude to our love feasts. Presumably, that was the Lord's Supper, but we do not know. There are the three accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke of the Last Supper of our Lord, which was a Jewish Passover meal to which Jesus gave new understanding. But that is not a description of the Christian Lord's Supper, that is a description of the last meal that Jesus had, the Passover meal. The only real place where you have the Lord's Supper described for you in any way or argued or discussed is the one that is before us that I read for you a few moments ago from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That people want to make this such an important element when the New Testament refers to it so rarely should in itself give us warning that this passage deals in a sense not so much with the Lord's Supper but with the failure to have the Lord's Supper should also give us warning, verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. What makes it qualify to be the Lord's Supper is being discussed in this passage. It is a very important passage for our understanding of this practice. But we must be wary in our reading of this passage that we don't read back our controversies into the passage. It happens, for example, at verse 27, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And in verse 29, whoever eats and drinks without recognising the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Given centuries of arguments about the nature of the presence of the Lord in the supper, it's very easy for us as moderns to be reading back here discussions which Paul would not have had in mind at all. Whether he believed in transubstantiation, consubstantiation, the real presence or whatever it may be that he did or didn't believe in, you'll find it very hard to understand from those words because the substantiation of Christ in the supper was really not in sight. What it means to drink in an unworthy manner, what it means to drink and eat not recognising the body of the Lord, must be determined from within the passage. But the context of the passage means that we really must sort it out because he says that you are guilty of drinking judgment on yourself, guilty of profaning the very body and blood of the Lord. It's not a kind of peripheral, doesn't matter much issue. He's actually saying it's a very important issue. That's why some of you are sick. Some of you have died. That's how important it is. You stand the threat of being under the judgment of God if you don't get this right. So it becomes a fairly important issue he's dealing with. But we must understand it 
in its terms, in its context. So what is the practice that he is condemning here? For he is not praising them in verse 17 as he did back in verse 2. What they are doing is wrong. Well, what are they doing that is so wrong? The answer is they were divided. Throughout the epistle, this is the problem of the Corinthians, isn't it? In chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, there's a big discussion about some who are of Paul party, some the Kephas party, some the Christ party. In chapters 12, 13, 14, there are clearly divisions about the use and place of the gifts of the Spirit or the works and manifestations of the Spirit. And in chapters 5 there is a, and 6, there is law courts and lawsuits and sexual differences between them that they're arguing about. And here there are divisions also. And he says in a sense that's inevitable that there will be differences to show that your view is the, has God's approval in verse 19, but it's their divisions which disqualify this from being the Lord's Supper. It's their lack of fellowship. Notice in verse 21, they were not waiting for one another. In verse 21 and verse 22, they were not sharing each other's food. The character of the Lord's Supper that is understood here is very different to ours, isn't it? Because it actually involves a meal. We will give you in a little while a small piece of bread and a plazo cup with the smallest amount of uh, drink that uh, you can possibly have. They are actually eating and drinking, people getting hungry and people getting drunk. Now you have to be a two-bob drunk to get drunk on the amount of alcohol we're going to give you tonight. You'll be hard-pressed to clean your teeth with it, let alone get drunk. But they are talking about people eating and drinking to such an extent that people are being full and people are being drunk. So what they had in mind here was the Lord's Supper was a full-blown meal. Whether that's an essential constituent part of it or not, we'll come to see in a few moments, but to anticipate, you can see that it's not because you're told if hunger is the reason for your eating, verse 34, stay at home and eat at home. The meal is not essentially about a meal, but the assumption of the passage is that it was a meal that was being eaten. What is being condemned is not that they were eating a meal, there's nothing wrong with that in itself, but they weren't sharing it together. In my youth, and in some of your youths, I used to go to a church where we had once a month a fellowship tea. Hands up those who endured fellowship teas through their high school days. Well, then you know the experience of fellowship teas. Once a month we all rolled up with a plate of whatever it was and we stuck it on the trellis tables because churches always had trellis tables and at the appropriate time when grace was said, we all tore over and shoveled the food from the plates on the tables onto our plate while we sat and ate endless pikelets and jam. For nearly everybody bought the same thing. That is closer to what is imagined and envisaged here. There is supposed to be a common meal that they are all going to share. Each one has brought along their food, but when they've brought along their food, what's happened is each one's eaten their own. And the poor brothers and sisters, they are sitting salivating while the rich brothers and sisters are eating their fill. They are not sharing with each other. That is the practice that is being condemned. And it's being condemned throughout the whole passage. Notice what is being said in verses 33, 34 at the end of the passage. He's still talking about waiting for each other and not, not eating for the point of view of hunger that is still the matter that's under concern in the whole passage. 
The implications of this practice are very important. Because they are denying fellowship in verses 18 through to 22, notice what they are doing. In verse 22, you are humiliating those who have nothing. People have come to the Lord's Supper, they've come to the church meeting, they've come to the gathering of God's people in order to be humiliated because of their poverty. It's a dreadful thing, you see, that's taking place then, isn't it? It is, in fact, verse 20, not the Lord's Supper. They think it's the Lord's Supper. Out on the church notice board, big sign, Lord's Supper, third Sunday night. But it's not the Lord's Supper that they are conducting. Verse 22, you notice, they are despising the church of God. They are treating with contempt God's assembly. The humiliation of the poor one is a fairly obvious and straightforward one, but pick up for a moment those other two. It's not the Lord's Supper. It's very important to grasp this, you see. Just because you go through a thing called the Lord's Supper, just because you go through a certain practice and pattern and way of doing certain things, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is the Lord's Supper. You see, there is much argument and discussion today about whether we are to believe in the Lord's presence in the supper, especially in, with, under, around, or somehow the bread and the wine. But much more we should be concerned not about the Lord's presence in the supper, but the Lord's absence from the supper. That is the real problem, because the Lord will absent himself, withdraw himself in judgment when the, when the Lord's Supper is not being actually celebrated. You can celebrate it in name and not reality. We're going to celebrate it in name in a few minutes' time. We must make sure it is the reality. For if we are, in fact, celebrating the name of the Lord's Supper when it's not the reality, we stand in danger of judgment, the judgment of God. Just because you've turned up to a church calling it the Lord's Supper does not mean it's the Lord's Supper. Do not be so worried about the Lord's presence, but be worried about his absence. I have no doubt that he has absented himself from many an idolatrous blasphemy that has taken place in his name. Notice also the despising of the church of God. You see, our gathering together is not just any old gathering. Our gathering together is God's gathering. This is God's assembly. We have gathered in the name of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. We have gathered in the name of God, claiming to be God's people. And as such, we are part of that great gathering of the end time when all God's people will be gathered around the throne of God to sing his praises for all eternity. This is, in a sense, a foretaste of that heavenly reality to which we are heading if we're in Christ Jesus. This is the bride of Christ, his body given to him by his father. This is the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. How do you feel when someone despises and ridicules and holds up to contempt your spouse, your fiancé? When someone treats them with complete disdain and contempt, why, it's enough to get you to punch them in the nose, isn't it? 
the fellows don't like it either when someone treats their spouse and fiancé like that. To despise the church of God, to despise the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, is indeed a dreadful thing to be doing. But if we treat this like a football game where everybody brings along their own esky and feeds themselves and doesn't worry about anybody else around about because we're just sitting in rows, totally unrelated to anybody else, watching the action out the front, then we are despising the church of God. We are treating it as something other than the assembly of God's people. And so he reminds them of the foundation of the Lord's Supper in verse 23, the night that Jesus was betrayed. The night when he took bread and broke it and gave it to them as a symbol of the body given for us, the body that was broken for us and given and shared. And what he said was to do this. Notice the phrase there, do this. That is, break it and give it to each. Do this in memory of me. It was a memorial meal he was celebrating at the time. It was the memorial meal of the Passover, that great time when the children of Israel were rescued out of Egypt, where they celebrated the killing of the fatted calf, uh, the sheep, the lamb rather, putting the blood over the doorpost, the Passover lamb, so that they would be spared from the judgment of God. And each year annually they would celebrate a memorial and they would remember the rescue out of Egypt. And Jesus says, now remember the rescue in my name. Now remember me. Now I am the Passover meal. And as he broke and gave it to them, he said, do this, break and give to each other in memory of me. In the same way, it's the same thing, it's the same deal, it's not separate really. Verse 25, he took the cup. And he said, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? We so often have slipped past and said, the wine is the blood, which is not what he said. The cup is the new covenant, the, the new agreement between God and man, the new agreement where forgiveness of sins was established by the blood of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ shed on the cross. The, new, the cup is the new agreement between God and man. And do this, this sharing around of the cup, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance, in memory of me. And therefore he concludes in verse 26, whenever you eat and drink, eat the bread, drink the cup of the Lord, sorry, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, he says, whenever you do that, in other words, how often really doesn't matter whether we have the Lord's Supper every week or once a year or once a decade, but whenever we do have it, how we have it is important. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, what you are doing, he says, verse 26, is proclaiming the Lord's death until he come again. In this lifetime, until Jesus returns, we are to remember the Lord's death. We are to proclaim, to preach, to teach each other about the Lord's death. For whenever we eat bread broken and shared amongst ourselves, we remember Jesus' body broken for us and given to each one. We remember Jesus' blood shed for each one of us 
And by eating and drinking we are accepting and identifying ourselves in relationship to the death of Jesus. That is, the Lord's Supper is not any old meal. Nor is it any old fellowship tea, fellowship meal. But it is the memorial meal expressing the basis of our fellowship. That is, the death of Jesus, the new covenant that that has won for us. We have meals for lots of reasons, don't we? I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when we were looking again at the Lord's Supper back in chapter 10, an idolatry subject. We have meals for lots of things, don't we? Have birthday parties, we eat meals. Go out for a restaurant to celebrate the end of the HSC. It will come to an end, friends. But I'd share that with you. Unless the Lord returns, and that would be a great salvation, it will come to an end. And we go out and celebrate the end of it. And when you... When the people come around, the waiter comes around and says, well, what are we celebrating tonight? You say, we are eating, we are celebrating tonight the end of the exams. The meaning of the meal we are having is that activity or at our wedding breakfast or at a funeral wake or at Christmas time. We are celebrating our family life together, gathering together with people that we wouldn't see the rest of the year, giving our compulsory presents and all that kind of thing. We are celebrating our roots, which we'll design for the next day. But it's a celebration of something, and it's eating. Not just any meal, it's a special meal. And because it's a special meal, there'll be certain activities about it, won't there? The birthday cake with the candles all scattered on in ever-growing numbers, I've noticed. Singing that funny little song, which I also understand is up for sale at the copyright office these days, and didn't even know it was copyrighted but there you go we can buy now happy birthday and keep making money out of it till 2010 when it runs out of copyright but we all sing that particular song you see to people and turn out the lights and get them to blow out the candle we go through little rituals because the meal itself is not the point of the exercise we could have fed ourselves before we got there the meal is to rejoice that our brother our sister has lived another year and we wish them many happy returns that this year this will happen again and again and again. Here is a meal with a purpose. But what is the purpose of this meal? The purpose of this meal is to express the basis of our fellowship together, namely the death of Jesus on our behalf. It's to remember that the reason we gather as the church of God, the reason we can gather as the church of God is because Jesus has died for us, taking our sin, that his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. Having condemned their practice and outlined the basic institution of the Lord's Supper, he turns to the subject of the judgment. Whoever, he says, partakes, whoever participates, by eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, by not recognising the body, is guilty of the blood and body of Christ. He's eating and drinking judgment on himself. To eat and drink in an unworthy manner is not to remember the death of Jesus, but to crucify Jesus again. You are guilty the word sin is not in the Greek. You are guilty of the body and blood, it says. You are the one. It's that activity that actually does it. 
You are sharing in the sin, not in the salvation of the crucifixion. When you eat and drink in an unworthy manner. And if you fail to recognize the body, then you're just eating and drinking condemnation upon yourself. That is why, he says, sickness and death has come. Because you're guilty of it. You're guilty of the judgment come upon you, you Corinthians. Just take a moment off here on the subject of sickness and death. You see the judgment picture there painted for you in verses 30 and 31. 30. Sometimes sickness is the judgment of God upon a specific sin. Not always is sickness the judgment of God on a specific sin. But sometimes it is. At the moment we have people on the one hand who want to say sickness is always the result of some sin. And on the other hand we have people who want to say sickness can never be the judgment of God. It's got nothing to do with God. God never punishes people with sickness. This passage shows you that God does punish some people with sickness sometimes and even death. Falling asleep is not a sermon activity. Falling asleep is dying. Even death has come to these people because of their sinfulness. And it comes as the judgment of God to discipline the church of God, to warn it not to go that way lest the whole church come under the judgment of God and be condemned to the world. Sickness can be the direct result of the judgment of God upon sin. But not always. The classic in that, of course, is Job's friends who kept on saying to Job, you must have done something very wicked to be like you are. The other classic is John chapter 9 where the man is born blind and Jesus is asked, did this man sin or did his parents that he was born blind? To which Jesus replied, neither this man nor his parents. So there is a case where that man's sickness, totally unrelated to any specific sin of his or his parents, not all sickness is the direct result of someone's specific sin. It's all a result of Adam's sin ultimately, of course, but it's not the result of a specific sin. I say it again because there are people who are saying now you've got some sickness, it's because you have sinned. And often when people are sick, they wonder why has God done this to me? Now that's not altogether a bad wonder. Because if there is something wrong in your life and the Lord is sending you a message, it's as well that you do wonder, isn't it? And you ponder yourself whether there is something wrong. Sometimes you can even see it as a kind of mechanical automatic reflex yeah the reason I'm feeling lousy this morning was what I did last night that can be understood sometimes fairly easily and sometimes it's not quite so easy but you know that you really are rebelling against God and running away from God and his disciplining hand is meant to love you to bring you back but often it's got nothing to do with it at all Often it's got to do with the fact that we are in a fallen world which is caught up in mortality and death and which people get sick, everybody gets sick. Unless the Lord returns, we'll all get so sick we're going to die one day. So it's just the normal pattern of this life, of this world. And when people come upon us and say, aha, you must have done something very wicked, we need to protest with Job, our innocence in the matter, and not be caught up on that guilt trip Sometimes you see people are saying, if you believed enough, if you prayed enough, you would be well. 
you would be healthy. And that is a wicked guilt trip to put people on for they pray and they get no better because it was not God's will that they would get better. But now they're made to feel doubly guilty. They were sinful in the first place, which is why they're sick, and they haven't got enough faith to pray enough to be able to get themselves out of their sickness. That's a very wicked thing, isn't it? Some friends of mine, some lovely Christian friends, have got two children, two of their four children, are autistic. That is a very difficult life. One child autistic is very difficult. Changes the whole character of the world for you, I can assure you, but to have two is unbelievably difficult. That's nothing to having Christian people going around telling them that they don't have enough faith, otherwise their children would be healed. To have that loaded on the difficulty of life you're going through as well is wicked. But sometimes we are sick because we've sinned. And those people who want to say God would, God, sickness is never the will of God need to read 1 Corinthians 11 because sickness sometimes is the will of God. He has sent it upon us for disciplining purposes. But come back to these people. They are sick and dying on this occasion because they are guilty. What are they guilty of? They must in the context be guilty of eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. They must be guilty of failing to recognise the body of the Lord. That's the context of it, isn't it? Well, if that is the case, how did they do it? How did they eat and drink in an unworthy manner? How did they fail to recognise the Lord? Well, the context says that the way they did it was by their practice of coming together and not sharing with each other. Their practice of one getting drunk while the other is thirsty, one eating his fill while the other one's hungry of not waiting for each other, not caring for each other, to come together to eat the Lord's Supper but not in fellowship with one another. That was their practice that led them to being judged. So then what is it to eat and drink in an unworthy fashion? What is it to eat and drink without recognising the body? It's to despise the church of God. It is to despise the body of Christ. That's what it is. What is the body of Christ we are to recognise? We are the body of Christ that we must recognise. I am not just in any old gathering here. I am in the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. And that is why I cannot, while remembering the death of Jesus on our behalf, I cannot ignore my brother and sister in Christ at the same time because I am denying the body of Christ while remembering the body of Christ. You can't do that simultaneously. Look back just to chapter 10 for a moment in verses 16 and 17 and see how he jumps from the body of Christ that was crucified to the body of Christ the church. One, chapter 10 verse 16 Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. Who is one body? We are one body. For we all partake of the one loaf. By our eating and drinking together in the bread and the wine that by which we remember the Lord Jesus, we are identifying ourselves as his body. And if you fail to recognise his body, if you fail to recognise that this church is the church of God, is the body of Christ, 
then you'll eat and drink condemnation upon yourself. And so, notice what he says is the correct way, which again reinforces that this is the right way of understanding the passage. What they are to do to correct their mistake is verse 33. When you come together, wait for one another. For if you come together and wait for each other, well then your meeting together will not result in judgment. If the way in which you eat is in fellowship, then you will be eating and celebrating the Lord's Supper. And so verse 28, we must examine ourselves. So verse 31, we must judge ourselves, our motives, our behaviour, our rationale that is necessary to participate appropriately. We must know that we are, as the prayer book used to put it, in love and charity with our neighbour. For if we're not in love and charity with our neighbour, then we cannot be celebrating the Lord's body. So look to yourself. Don't rush headlong inconsiderately eating and drinking without concern for your brother and your sister for whom Christ died. The passage has implications for three things I want to draw your attention to tonight. First, fellowship. Second, the sacraments. And thirdly, our meeting tonight. Firstly, fellowship. The conclusion of what I've been saying so far means that this meal is a meal of fellowship based on the Lord's death. And so we must see the Lord's death leading to the, our fellowship. We must see the implications of the Lord's death for our fellowship. Let me show you the kinds of things I have in mind with two quotes from the scriptures. They're short ones. You write down, I'll read them for you. 1 John 4, 1 John 4, 10 and 11. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Or picking up later in the same chapter, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. See, the death of Jesus on our behalf is the great expression of the love of God for us. And if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. When we come to celebrate the death of Jesus, we must celebrate it loving one another. For if we're not loving one another, well, we haven't understood the love of God. The love of God is not in us. The loving of one another is the very indication that we have grasped the love of God. And some say, oh, well, no, I come to the communion. I'm not interested in the other people with me. I am communing with God. If you do not love your brother whom you can see, there's no way you can be loving God whom you can't see. Loving your person you can see is much easier than loving the person you can't see. You're a liar. You're fooling yourself if you think you love God while you hate your brother. No, no, the only way you can be short and certain that you love God is that you love your brother. For if you love God, it is because God loves you first and sent his son to die for you. And you know that. 
And if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. 1 John 4, it's well worth pondering, isn't it? It picks up the kind of thing that I was saying in the other verse I was going to mention to you, John 13, 35, where Jesus, in the context of the Last Supper, in John's Gospel, says, By this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The mark of being a Christian is not a fish badge or a cross hanging around the neck. The mark of being a Christian is love of the brethren. Not love of all mankind even, but love of the brethren. That is the sign, the external sign that we truly have grasped the gospel. So that if we come together to remember the very heart of the gospel but don't care for each other, we're not remembering the heart of the gospel at all. We haven't got the gospel at all. That's why their failure to have fellowship with each other meant that it was not the Lord's Supper that they were celebrating. Fellowship that is based on the death of Jesus then means there can be no distinctions, can there? Fellowship on the death of Jesus means that we're all here on the same basis, forgiven sinners. Doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, young or old, male or female, Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. I don't know how many Scythians we've got tonight. But it really doesn't matter. Even the Scythians are welcome. It doesn't matter whether you're a doctor or a professor or a reverend or any of the human distinctions we may want to bring in. There's only one basis you can come into this fellowship meal. Jesus died for you. It's the only basis. And that is the great equaliser for us all, isn't it? We are those who are forgiven by the new covenant, the death of Jesus on our behalf. So then it has implications for sacramentalism. You see, the Lord's Supper is not necessarily the Lord's Supper. You can go through the motions but still not have the Lord's Supper. For when there is no fellowship of believers, there is no Lord's Supper. That is why anonymous church-going really has a terrible problem. When we do not know the congregation and do not care to know the congregation, when we don't care to know our brothers and sisters, it's very strange to think that we are gathered together in love. That is a peculiar sense of love. Now, we may have some visitors here tonight. And if we have some visitors, you are welcome at the Lord's table with us, even though you do not know us yet. But we hope that you will get to know us during the course of the evening. We have supper on straight after church so as to provide some of those facilities. That's why we have the things like the newcomers' weekends away and the prayer and Bible groups so people can get to know each other. That is why it's important that we come consistently and we talk to the people around about us at church because if we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper loving one another, we have to at least know each other. We may not be able to get to know everybody but we've got to know some people, haven't we? to be caring for each other. Anonymity in church going is very difficult, but there are many people who would celebrate the Lord's Supper purposely and anonymously. But it's all caught up and locked up in my own private devotions that I'm having publicly in front of the church. That cannot be the Lord's Supper. Indeed, it's impossible to have a private Lord's Supper. The essence of it has to do with fellowship. And it's important to see then the important element is not the bread or the wine or the meal itself, but the Lord's action, which has been symbolised in the breaking of bread and the giving it to everybody 
in the sharing of the cup around because in that we are to remember how his body and blood was shed and broken for all of us. The important element is the Lord's action and our heart's response. The litmus test of our heart's response is our love for one another. If we don't know of Jesus' death on our behalf, well then yes, we are an outsider to the Lord's Supper. To eat bread and to drink wine will be a meaningless activity because we're not remembering the Lord's death for us because we do not know about the Lord's death for us. If you're a non-Christian visitor who's come along tonight, we're very glad you're here and we love to have you here. And by all means, stay on for the Lord's Supper. If you're embarrassed about it, well, in a moment or two, I think we're going to have a break and you can sneak out inconspicuously and no one will really notice. There's usually a, a, a whole group sneaking out, heading down in that direction to inspect whether we've built new toilets or not yet. And so sneaking out won't be noticed by anybody. Come again next week. By all means, don't feel embarrassed that but don't feel embarrassed about staying. We're not going to do anything magical, mysterious, strange, peculiar. We're just going to eat a little piece of bread and, and drink a little bit of wine. Grape juice for some of us because we don't want to drink wine. And we're going to pray together. That's all we're going to do. And if you want to stay and watch that and just pass the bread and pass the wine as it goes past, well, look, no one will even pay any attention or notice. So you can stay by all means. You're welcome to do that. But to eat the bread and to drink the wine is to say, Jesus Christ died for me. I am part of this body of Christ for I am one of those sinners for whom he died, forgiven because he died. The important element is our heart's response. That is, celebrating the Lord's Supper is not an expression, not a means, not a way to draw near to God. We are not going to be closer to God by eating bread and drinking wine. You'll be no closer to God in the Lord's Supper here tonight than you were as you drove to church or walked through the park. You're no closer to God here when you're eating the, the bread and drinking the wine than here now when you're reading the scriptures and listening to me preach or in a few moments when we're praying together or singing or even going out to the toilet. You're no closer to God or further away. This is not the way to God. But this is a reminder and a proclamation of God coming to us and of our present standing, our fellowship in the presence of God now. You see, so many of the religions of the world and the forms of Christianity that people believe in that are false are about climbing your way to heaven of doing certain things privately and personally, corporately and ritually that will get you closer to God. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about us climbing up to the stairway to heaven. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about God coming down to mankind and paying the penalty for us. It's not man become God, it's God become man. And so when we eat and drink bread and wine, this is not the way to get up to God. For God has already come down to us. This is celebrating the fact that because God came down to us, we are already in relationship with God. We are proclaiming the Lord's death that made us right with God and brought us into his very presence already. Sacramentalism has misunderstood the gospel very severely. And so as we come tonight, 
let's examine ourselves. Our attitudes to Christ, our attitudes to the bride of Christ, to each other. Let's just rush in and say, oh, it's the Lord's Supper, I must... No, no. If you have something against your brother, if you're out of fellowship with your sister, then fix it up before you express your love in the Lord's Supper. If we're not eating in love and charity with each other, then we shouldn't be eating at all because we're not celebrating the Lord's Supper. For the Lord's Supper is an expression of being the Lord's body, of being in fellowship with each other. So let us eat and drink remembering, proclaiming the Lord's death as the basis of our fellowship. It's going to take a few minutes to do that. So I don't want us to spend much time on questions and comments because it's going to take us a little time to do something much more important than discussing. But it is a particular passage that worries people. So do you want to ask some questions and I will answer quickly and we'll pass on. James is asking the question about whether examining ourselves is, is, is something we do individualistically about our own sinfulness or is it part of the corporate activity that we are examining. Yet we do it both individually and corporately. But the thing we're to examine is not so much all the sins I have committed in the last week or since we had the Lord's Supper last time, which being six months ago could be quite a long time examining but rather to examine ourselves whether we are living in fellowship and love with one another, whether we're acting appropriately. Now, you're not going to have the Corinthian problem, are you? Nobody is going to get drunk on the wine tonight. Nobody is going to get full on the food we give them tonight. But of course, that's just a tangible expression of the problem. You can still be handing the bread over to your brother and saying, here you are and I hate your guts inside your head, can't you? It's what's inside your mind and heart, attitude towards each other, which is really the thing. And if, if you have something against your brother or your sister, then during the break time, it's a time to step outside and fix it up with each other, isn't it? Rather than to be pursuing the issue and ignoring our concern for each other. That's the examination. Sorry, Alice. Uh, Russell's raised the question, historical practice of many denominations of taking the Lord's Supper to people who are ill, especially, and, and unable to come to the service as an expression of fellowship. But I think you find the first reference to, to it is in Justin Martyr in 165 AD as a practice uh, that uh, was taken. And you can see it's a, nice little, it's a nice little gesture, isn't it? It's like taking a piece of wedding cake to someone who couldn't turn up to the wedding to let them know that they were still remembered in the fellowship at the time. But it's so open to superstition that actually that piece of wedding cake is, a, is 
when we're dealing with this subject that that piece of bread really is a piece of Jesus that I've got in my hand now and given the tradition of some people who believe that is the bread of, that is the body of Jesus and so when it is held up everyone is to fall down and bow before it then carrying it around and even taking it to sick people seems an inappropriate way of expressing that fellowship. I am all for taking the Lord's Supper to the sick but the way you take the Lord's Supper to the sick is by several members going and visiting the person together and praying together. And so the visitation or the communion of the sick or the private communion in the prayer book of the Anglican Church is completely right. The, the minister or whoever it may be may visit the sick and celebrate at the Lord's Supper with them but there must be two or three people there. So wherever there's two or three, Christ is in our midst. But you're not to just do it alone. And so the important point is the fellowship. Even at you know, the extreme circumstance of the sick shut-in, it's still a matter of fellowship that we're involved in. And the essence of it is taking the fellowship, not taking the piece of bread. That's not the essence of it. See, that's shifted the focus onto the bread rather than onto the fellowship. And so it has been an unfortunate mistake done from very understandable motivations in the first place and led to terrible superstitions as people have stored up little bits of Jesus. Well now, more important than our questions really, I mean understanding is very important in this matter. More important is that we do examine ourselves and make sure that we are right with the Lord and with one another, with his people. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.